Good morning, everybody. Welcome to La Jolla Community. Good morning, Pastor. I see you back there. <laughs> it's good to be in the house of the Lord this morning. Um, if you will, and if you're able, please stand to your feet. Let's worship the Lord. I'm sure you probably remember this first song. I'll sing the first part, and then the church choir will, will respond.
that the highest king would welcome me. I was lost, but he brought me Oh, his love for me. Oh, his love for me. Who the sun sets free, oh, is free. Jesus, you are indeed worthy of all honor, all glory, and praise. We, however, are not. 
As a nation, we have been asleep, failing to fight for godly laws and statutes, apathetic and compliant in making our own laws and our own version of who you are. And it's not going well for us. Build in us a repentant heart, O oh Lord. Hear now our silent confession. Thank you, Lord, that when we confess and turn away from sin, you will forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Thank you, Lord, for placing our church family in this place at this time for your purpose and plan. We look forward to your leading and timing as we prepare and trust. Thank you that your light, your power, your authority and plan will not be thwarted. And thank you that we as children of God are called to live in the light focus on the light, and proclaim with loving authority the truth of the word of God that pierces the darkness around us. Lord, you are still inviting us to join you in the work that you're doing in the world. And that work is to reach everyone, to save them for the kingdom of God. Reveal our roles according to our gifts. Fill and equip us with creative ways to communicate the gospel message in the most pure way. I pray the Holy Spirit would create a longing heart in each one of us to seek you more and more through a regular group Bible study. We are reminded that it is iron that sharpens iron. I pray that each member of our church community through life circumstances and church teaching, prayer, and support grow to love and trust you more fully, and additionally, that they experience the very real and very personal relationship with you. May the light and authority of the Lord Jesus Christ grow leaps and bounds at La Jolla Community Church as we purpose to go forth in our community in peace, and return in joy. I pray these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is worthy. Amen. Welcome to La Jolla Community Church. If this is your first time joining us for our worship service, we're so glad that you're here. On your way in, you should have received a bulletin on there, you will find our Connect card. If you are looking to get connected with the church, we encourage you to fill out that Connect card so we can get to know you. If you have new contact information, please fill out the Connect card so we can keep you updated. On the other side, you will find our Prayer card. If you have anyone in your life who is in need of prayer, please fill out the Prayer card or visit our website at ljcc.org prayer. On your way out, you can drop these cards off in the foyer or the box mounted on the wall. School's back in session, pumpkin spice is in the air, and it's time again for LJCC's annual fall kickoff. 
Join us on Sunday, September 17th for our 9.30 a.m. worship service and then stick around afterward as we kick off the fall season with brunch and conversation with fellow churchgoers. We hope you will join us for our fall kickoff and take this opportunity to renew your relationship with God. Well, good morning, and uh, there's a big gap there. I'm trying to figure out why there's a big gap there, but I think, oh, you know what? We ha- we're doing a new thing. We want to have a mosh pit because we know it goes crazy here, so you just feel free to jump in here and do your thing. Uh, we're going to launch into the new year next weekend, but I wanted to prepare us for that by talking about what does it mean to be the church, really asking that question. Why church? Uh, I won't show, ask for a show of hands, but... You know, I'm just wondering, how many of you grew up going to church? I did not grow up going to church. I grew up in a family where my parents would argue about what church not to go to. And literally, they would argue about what church not to go to. And, and so we had a hall pass. While they were arguing, we were playing, you know, kind of a thing. Uh, so church, to me, was a, a really odd uh, idea that in a super busy week, and finally get to the weekend, you'd get up on purpose, deliberately, on a Sunday morning, and you'd go to a church. Uh, and it was just a weird, shocking idea to me that, that people would do this. I didn't understand why they would do it and then why they'd even argue about it. But then uh, at the end of high school, uh, some of you heard me say this, I started reading the Bible just to be open-minded and to be defended against anybody who tried to mug me with it. And uh, I met God in that process. So I won't go into all the details of that process, but that led me to really coming to know God. And some of the adults that were involved in that through Young Life realized that the kids like me were not going to go to a church. That would not be a good start to drag them into a typical church in Willowglen, a little suburb of San Jose, California. And so uh, they would, the leaders would drive us up to Palo Alto to this old Safeway store that had become a church called Peninsula Bible Church. And it was filled with a bunch of Stanford students and, and uh, Silicon Valley uh, people. That's when Silicon Valley really was crowded in, in the Palo Alto area. And a guy named Ray Stedman uh, would get up and simply, there'd be some music, phenomenal music, really great music. Kind of, it was the early days of like amazing Christian music. And so, I, excuse me, all the hymns written over hundreds of years were amazing Christian music. But in terms of contemporary Christian music, some of that was starting to roll out. And it was just this, you know, open, imagine a Safeway. And all these people, guys with you know, wild-looking hair, women with wild-looking hair, some people with no hair. It was just a very interesting cross-section of generations and lifestyles, and it, and it was capturing the moment in the Bay Area. Uh, and the soundtrack of the Bay Area then was the Grateful Dead, you know, pretty much. And so uh, Ray Stedman, after the music, would get up and just open the Bible and start talking about it. So he and Chuck Smith were doing kind of the same thing at the same time, one in Northern California, one in, in Southern California. And it was electric. Uh, and he'd teach the word, and then he'd say, anybody want to talk about what God's doing in your life? And he had this thing where they called it body life, and somebody would run around um, and, and with a mic and like this, and he'd say, hey, what do you want to share? People would just start telling stories about what Jesus was doing. And it was like a total hippie, academic, science-based community, weird combination of things. So you'd have business people next to, you know, Nobel laureates next to, Guys who just got out of their converted bread truck, you know, and pulled up. And so it was fantastic. We thought this is what the church is supposed to be. Now, having done that for a while, I started to think, you know what? This is like church Disneyland. 
because I'm driving 40 minutes up here from, I'm not, but I'm driving up with friends to, to go to this place. In fact, a guy, today, was, uh, yesterday, uh, I was talking to a guy who is, I, I put him on the prayer list. His name is Jeff. He's, he's one of seven people in this super experimental thing to save his life. He's at, he's, um, at a world-class hospital. He's been dealing with some big issues, and he's, he's, he's the most, one of the most talented people and connected people I've ever met. And so he's just, he walks in a room, and it lights up. He's that kind of guy. And he goes, hey, remember when you, you took me up to Peninsula Bible Church, PBC? I said, yeah, yeah, that was pretty neat. We, were, we talked about that, you know, how alive that was. But I realized, you know, I need to go to a local church. So I started going to this local church. And I didn't really, haven't had that brief introduction over a few months at PBC. I didn't quite know what it would be like. I just thought I'm going to walk in and do what I do at PBC. I walk in, I've got like, I just basically wear Levi 501s, flip-flops, a t-shirt, and long hair. And I walk in, I sit in the front seat, front row of the church with my Bible. I'm like, and the, the preacher's like, oh, okay, you know. And I didn't think to look around and realize everybody was our age there. And there's a smattering of young people. And I was just into it, you know, and I thought this is what the church is supposed to be. Well, of course, you know, a little over time, that, that church, you know, came alive, and it was really neat to see how that happened. And then, you know, I went to seminary, actually started studying what is the church and how does that work and all that kind of stuff. My point of saying all this is, is the church in our culture is a mixed bag of, of disappointments and ecstatically inspiring moments. It's just a mixed bag. Uh, and this is how the church has always been. Just let that sink in. This is not a new phenomenon. The early church was a mixed bag of expectations, controversies, etc. And we're gonna we're gonna dive into that. And we're asking the question, you know, why church? What is it, what, what is church for? And I ask you the question: How would you explain church to a, a non-church person? Now you might think, well, heck, everybody knows about church. You'd be surprised how many people do not know about church who are highly educated, well-informed, interesting, go-for-it people, uh, passionate about all kinds of things, their family, their friends, their career, the world, and they have never had a, a thought that the church had anything to do with it. I, I was, years ago, uh, I, I was invited to have lunch through a friend who called his friend and said, hey, you know, you got to meet my friend, Steve, and this guy calls me, and I, I, he said, well, hey, come down to my office downtown, and I just knew, moved to you know, La Jolla, and, and so... Uh, we're in this penthouse office uh, overlooking San Diego, and we're having lunch, and I'm thinking, wow, okay. And I I'm realizing these two guys were roommates at Stanford University. Since then, my friend has become an avid follower of Jesus. And this guy is just a super awesome dude, to use that language, but he, it's, and has a churchish background. So anyway, he says, so well, you're a pastor, right? Um, I said, yeah, and I said, he said, well, what can I do for you, you know? I'm kind of like, why are you here? Uh, besides that our, our mutual friend Mike sent you here. And I said, well, uh, he, I guess he wanted us to get to know each other, and, and I guess I want to ask you a question. How can I be helpful to you? What do you, think, what do you think the church in San Diego can do to bless the city? Uh, and I, it's like I'd asked him to take pie out to 20 spots, you know, kind of thing. He's like, he was kind of flummoxed by it. He's like, wow, I've never thought about that. You know, I, I grew up going to church and all that, but uh, and he was trying to find a nice way to say, but the church is entirely irrelevant to my world. 
and the world of this city. And this guy, to this day, is a go-to guy in this city. There's going to be an airport built. Somebody's going to call him and say, hey, what do you think? What should we do? Not that he's running anything. He just has that gravitas as an elder statesman. Now, you'd think somebody who has a gravitas as an elder statesman, you'd like to think they're saying, well, uh, let's pray about it. <laughs> let's think about what God wants for this city, and let's us go for that. So uh, when you start talking to a non-church person, I'm not talking about a person who's evil. I'm talking about a person who has no room in their life because church is so irrelevant to their life. And Jesus is now a voting block somewhere, perhaps, but you know, they don't have a, even a sense that, besides being a wonderful person who didn't, it didn't end well in history, uh, has nothing to do with my world. Are you with me on this? You know people like this. Uh, you might have really close personal friends, uh, work colleagues, other family members, etc. This might be your world. Most often you're in a, in a situation with good people, great people, you love these people, but if you ask them to all, your, all your friends to raise their hands, what does church mean to you? They'd have a blank look on their face and they go, uh, I don't know. Controversy? You know. And then I asked the question, you know, how would you explain it uh, to a non-church person? But I, I asked the question, what does the church have to do with what we call the gospel, this good news about Jesus? And then I asked this question. It gets a little trickier. How would you describe the gospel? How would you describe the gospel? We, have, we live in a time when a lot of churches in America are doing what they think is preaching the gospel. And it is. It's, but it's a very minimal gospel. It's a here's how you get to heaven message. That's not a bad message. And that is a, an aspect of the gospel. But it's not the gospel. The gospel isn't how do you get to heaven. Here's the gospel. It's just simple. The gospel is Jesus fulfilling Israel's story. And you might think, what does that have to do with anything? Oh, bear with me. The gospel is Jesus fulfilling Israel's story and establishing his new covenant for all of us. And in Jesus fulfilling Israel's story, we get to participate in that story. And so the church doesn't replace Israel in God's story. It fulfills God's promise to bless all nations. God promised Abram, I'm raising you up. I'm going to make a people where there is no people, a nation where there is no nation. In his case, a family where there is no family. And through you, putting your trust in me, I'm going to bless all nations. That's the promise of the, the gospel to be realized and now fulfilled in Christ. It's so much more comprehensive than you get to go to heaven. Because so many people on, on, uh, in surveys in the United States would say, I believe in Jesus, oh, he was a good guy, or I, I, I believe in God. And they don't connect to a community, a church, because they know that their ticket is punched and they're going to heaven. And they just have to fill up their time in between now and then. There's nothing compelling about how they live and how they respond to the gospel one day at a time, one moment at a time. Now, this might offend you, confuse you, or confirm what you already think. Um, but this is the dilemma that we live in. This is the dilemma in every age in human history since the gospel uh, was first rolled out. And later this morning, um, sometime before, after, you know, before dinner, um, I want to be able to um, give you a really you know, quick 90-second walk through the history of the church in America. It'll literally be 90 seconds. So the church then is a movement of God's spirit redeeming his creation, uh, moving toward a new heaven and a new earth, and it changes everything in us right now. 
It's not a postponed future. It's an immediate, immediate embrace of God's present reality. That's, that's, that's the language. And so the church is a movement of God's spirit, but it's also an institution led by people. And this is where we get in trouble. Because wherever people are running institutions, they can really uh, come off the, the rails. Um, just think, you put two people in charge of a marriage, it's a mess. <laughs> you put them in charge of kids and a family, it gets messier. You put those same wonderful people in charge of anything, and after a while, it doesn't work out the way they hoped and expected it would work out. I never thought it would lead to this. This is the human dilemma. Our good intentions are good intentions, and then it, it's, it's anybody's guess what will happen. Okay, now the Bible describes this movement in a bunch of Greek words, because that's what they spoke, um, but I'm going to say these Greek words just so you get a sense of um, how awesome it is to know Greek words. No, I, just because you, you hear some of the roots in the words we use in these Greek words. So um, the Bible describes this movement as an ecclesia. You've heard of the term ecclesiastic, ecclesi- you know, ecclesiastical, of the church. Ecclesia is just a Greek word that means, hey, hey, come on over, come on, get together. It just means calling people together. Ecclesia is it? It's 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 calling people together. The church is a people called together in Jesus' name, from every tribe, every nation, every corner of the earth. It's that simple. What is the church? It's it's an invitation from God, calling people together. It's koinonia. Uh, you probably never heard that term except for in church. Koinonia just means a community, a tight community, a community that somehow is really working for everybody in it. Uh, a word like oikos, you think, ah, Greek yogurt. I've seen that, I bought it, I like it, not bad. Not sweet enough for some people, and thick. Uh, oikos is simply the word for household in Greek. It's the base for our word economy. The church is a, an economy. That is, it's a household of faith. You see, now you're a genius on Greek because you're already, so far, two out of three of the words you go, I know these words. Uh, mathetes, you don't know this word, but you do know the word because the Latin version of it that we use is called disciple. A methetes is a person who is a, a, a learner, a student of a master, of a teacher. Uh, a methetes. You'll know this word, a martures, a marturion, a martyr, uh, people who die. No, they're people who tell a story. A martyr is one who is bearing witness. It's a legal term. I like to call up the martyr. And we're going to ask you some questions. Do you tell, you swear to tell the whole truth? That's a, that's a witness. The problem with the church was that as they started to tell as disciples, as mathetes, functioning as a marturos, telling me, uh, giving you an answer for why they have hope, uh, they started using terms like Jesus is Lord, and people said, well, actually Caesar is Lord. Can you correct the way you talk about it? Yeah, Jesus is Lord, and Caesar is emperor. No, that wasn't good enough. And so they were, people were persecuted and slaughtered. They became martyrs. They became simply witnesses who bore witnesses and weren't willing to compromise that witness. Now, these were led by euangelistos. Uh, uh, euangelistos. Oh, evangelists. Oh, yeah. People who were proclaiming the message. Um, they were led by apostolos. Oh, apostles. People who were sent. If, if the mathetes is one who's called to come in close to learn as a disciple, the, the apostolos are people sent out. The Apostle Peter, what he sent out in Jesus' name. Uh, Poemenos, uh, those are, that's, a, that's the word they use for a shepherd. It became the word we call pastor. Uh, we talk about a pastoral scene. It's a shepherd scene. The Cotswolds are a beautiful pastoral environment. 
And uh, so poemenos, that's a shepherd. One, one aspect of the church is that they have people who care for the people. Uh, they have people co- who are called didaskolos. Those are the teachers. You have people called prophetas. Hey, I know, that sounds like prophet. It is. People who are, who are speaking for us something that we need to hear. Uh, fall into disrepair and, and disparagement because so many people have gamed the role. Uh, I know, I can tell these people what to do by pretending it's a prophetic word. But really, it's, it's still an active function in the church, the prophetic role. Episcopos, oh yeah, I used to go to one of those, an Episcopalian church. Episcopos just t- t- talks about a governmental structure. Somebody who's overseeing and responsible for caring for leaders of leaders. Uh, the next word, presbyter. It means a- an elder, literally an older person. A presbyter, oh yeah, you went to a Presbyterian church one time. Okay, well, so a presbyter and a system built around presbyters is a system saying the church will be governed by elders. Teaching elders called pastors, ministers, and other elders. So these are structural, administrative aspects of being the church. And then they have another role called a diakonia. Uh, we know them as deacons or uh, servant leaders. Uh, diakonos is a servant. So those are the words. So these are words that were just drawn out of the culture. They weren't special words. They were just words. And this is how the church described itself, as a movement of God's spirit and as a functional institution. To say something is institutional isn't to disparage the movement. Every mature movement has to have some institutional components. We're so in love, it's awesome, we can do whatever we want. Oh my gosh, we just had a baby, we need some structure here. In fact, the baby will provide the structure, (laughs) right? And so every movement becomes uh, supported by a, a necessary, appropriate structure. What we don't like is when after a while a movement becomes secondary to the institution. Because a movement is served by the people in the movement. An institution is served by the movement. <laughs> and so the institution becomes top-heavy and ineffective, and you, get to, you have to either renew it or ditch it. Are you with me on this? You're becoming experts on what the church is, if anybody bothers to ask you. So church, church works, though, when we see it as its organic uh, primary entity. What is that? The body of Christ. You see this phrase used in the Bible, we are the body of Christ over which he is the head. And as the body of Christ, we become a community with a unique purpose under God's command. So we're not a wonderful human organization that invites God to participate and attend on occasion. We are a God-centered, a God-driven, a God-called ecclesia, learning how to function under his lordship, directed by his word, empowered by his spirit. That's how we self-correct. And our responsibility is the same one that God gave Adam and Eve in Genesis 1, to, to uh, rule over all creation and to manage it properly. That has now become the role of people in the church. It's still, still our role in the world, but it's also our role in the church. How do we own it in a way that we serve it well under the, os, the, uh, the, the sovereignty of God? You see how what a heavy and wonderful privilege and responsibility this is? Jesus did not die so that we could go to church. Jesus died and rose again so we could be the church. It's an organic reality. So here's some of the, um, the passages uh, you know, that, that we need to then embrace uh, to, to take it from a, I attend a church occasionally, or that's no church, that's a safe way. I, I, I recognize that floor plan. You know, that can't be a church that's a, under a tree. That can't be a church that's in a commercial building. That can't be a church. Those people are dressed so casually. 
My gosh, you're walking and drinking coffee. Oh, because we invited him to walk and drinking coffee. My bad, I guess I'm correct on that. So here's a, here are the passages that help us understand what it is. 1 Corinthians 12, now you are Christ's body. You are Christ's body. Notice the present tense. You will someday be, no, you are Christ's body and individually members of it. Okay, there's a wonderful tension between the whole and the part. Neither will exist but for the other. Uh, Romans says it this way. Paul says it to the Romans. For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. There's this organic wholeness that is inherent and essential in a church. Paul writing to the Ephesians said it this way. So... Uh, he's talking to a mixture of Gentiles, non-Jews, and Jews. He says, so you are no longer foreigners and aliens, outsiders to Israel. You're no longer interlopers. Who are you? Oh, you're a Gentile? Okay, fine. You sit in the back. But no, you're no longer a separate category. He's saying that all these people who are living in Ephesus, the second most powerful city in the Roman Empire, but now you're fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. You see all the imagery, the metaphors that are mixed together there? But it's still an organic thing he's talking about. A building that grows? That's definitely a smart building. You want a smart building? It's just not more electronic gear. It's a building that actually is growing. Imagine as, as you added kids to the, the small apartment you lived in, and over time that apartment just kept growing. The apartment knew we needed more space, so the apartment kept growing. Somehow all the apartments could keep growing, and so you didn't need a house because that little place that you first lived in now becomes a place that, you know, powerful imagery. He goes on to say, or Peter goes on to say, as you come to him, and now he uses this metaphor, the living stone, Rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him. Talking about Jesus, but now he's also kind of segueing into, that's who you are too. Right now, the Roman Empire, for the most part, rejects you and uh, wants to dismiss you. Uh, but you are chosen by God and you're precious to him. If they're telling you you're out of your mind and wrong and actually you're treasonous. And the Romans would tell people who didn't name G Caesar as Lord that they were atheists. So if you were in Rome and you said that Jesus is Lord, not Caesar, you are an atheist. Literally, they would say you are an atheist. That's, that's against the law here in Rome. You go, well, uh, you know, I'm a follower of God. I am not an atheist. You know, there's one God, it's Caesar, the eternal son of God. And you go, oh my gosh, what kind of world is this? And so it says, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a bunch of bored people every Sunday. No, a holy priesthood. What? No, no, man, I, I work over it. <laughs> no. no, you're called to be part of a holy priesthood. Now, you don't have to dress up in what you think a priest should look like. You just have to do what a priest would do. Oh, I, I come before God in, the, in, in, the, in favor of people, and I come before people in favor of God. That's what a priest does. Pretty simple. 
offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. What is a spiritual sacrifice? I get up and go worship God with my, my bros, my sisters. I, I go out of my way to feed people who are hungry, to help people who are lost find their way. I help people who are confused get clear. You know, these are spiritual sacrifices. Why? You're not cutting up an animal, burning it on an altar? No. Uh, that was a kind of sacrifice, but that was a picture of what sacrifice is. Presenting something in a holy manner to God. Now, what I do now is I present my time, talent, and treasure as a living sacrifice. That counts as my sacrifice. And they're acceptable to God. And so he says, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. You see, this fulfills all of God's promises to Abraham. That you may declare the praise of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Now, over history, some people have heard this message and said, now they're all in, let's close the door and lock it so those ragged other people don't get in here, which is a big mistake because the door is always open uh, to this household of faith. Everybody's welcomed into it. So this is a divine reality, not some future idealization. Get your head around that. This is a divine reality. This is your true identity. And wiggle and worm as much as we can to get out of it, because I'm like, I'm not taking that on. It feels awkward to even think of me calling myself that or being that. But that's who you are. Get, get over it, get used to it, get with it. This is your new identity. It's a present reality. Yeah, but I'm not very good at it. That's not the issue. It's who you are. What will you do with it? If you've ever suffered through, and I mean it seriously, suffered through a child learning how to play piano and especially violin, you want to say, get with it. Stay on that, because it gets better. Because someday somebody will pay money to hear that kid play. So, gee, you, you keep saying I'm going to be a great musician someday, or an athlete, mom, dad. I don't feel like I'm very good at it. I'm the last kid picked. Yeah, hang in there. Hang in there. You don't know what's going to happen. And so I think of, you know, those little kids that you grew up with and I grew up with who one day ended up doing things you thought, what? How did you end up doing that? I just kept doing it long enough until they let me keep doing it. They started paying me for it, and people, you know, here I am. So sadly, um, <clears throat> you know, oh, by the way, you know, so God creates a church as a space for everybody to scale us up. So who we are when we show up isn't who we're going to be. So in that sense, that is a future reality, but the present reality is where we start. So it's, God's making space for you, and apparently we have space for others here, that he wants to scale you up and scale us up. So when you look back and go, oh my gosh, I can't believe the things I believe and I do now that I would have never saw myself believing or doing a year or five or 10 or 20 ago. I had a conversation this week with somebody in our church, two weeks ago, rather, and I, I just had to stop in the conversation and say, can you hear yourself? You are such a theologian. You are, you're so wise the way you're talking about the Word of God and the way you interact with people. And, and we, we just were chuckling about it, going, yeah, who would have thunk it, you know? This is what God does in us, does for us. This is why every kid hates it and loves it. You go, my gosh, you're getting tall. They go, oh, yeah. I am. Uh, so, sadly, sometimes church has been the then, though, in spite of this, the context of people's deepest disappointments. 
Again, it's that human-run institutional thing that gets in the way all the time. But here's the thing. Our personal and common brokenness makes this entirely possible and highly probable. Uh, there was a guy who was uh, shipwrecked, marooned on, a, on an island, nothing on the island. There was materials and stuff. He could survive on it, but there's no people there. So he gets to work, and eventually he's rescued. And before the, he, he goes uh, to uh, you know, get, get on the ship and go, he said, hey, let me show you around. And people said, yeah, I'd love to see what you've done here while you've been here. And he says, this, and it's like a hut, because this is my house that I built with my own hands. I'm like, whoa, that's awesome. He walks over to the building and goes, this is my church that I built with my own hands. I'm like, wow. And somebody says, what's that over there? He goes, oh, it's a church I used to go to. <laughs> now you think about that. You know, one guy on an island, and he gets so fed up with the church, he has to, he has to leave it and go build a new church. You know, this is the human dilemma. Uh, this is the human dilemma. Churches struggle with all the inevitable expectations that arise in human community. A bunch of hypocrites in there. Well, is that a, is that a synonym for people? I think so. <laughs> the church is filled with people. And when people come in, they bring, we, bring, we bring all of our dysfunction, our brokenness, our assumptions, our fears, our, our, our hopes. We bring it all in. And we look around for somebody to assign the fulfillment of those. And so conflict is inevitable. Conflict is unavoidable. And, of course, in Christ, conflict is solvable. How do you know when a conflict is unsolvable when nobody is willing to solve it? Pretty simple definition. Acts 6.1 uh, describes the first church conflict. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. Now here's as close as you could get to a, a homogeneous community. Everybody in the room in the early church was a Jew. But some, were they would call themselves Hebraic Jews. Uh, they had rejected Greek culture. But since Greek culture was the culture that everybody lived in, uh, most Jews had, had um, absolutely embraced the Greek culture, both in fashion, how, everything about them looked like a Greek, but they were un unapologetically a Jew. Uh, they'd do all the things that, that Greeks would do, but they said, I'm, I'm a faithful Jew. Well, the Hellenistic Jews... Had, even had their own Bible called the Septuagint. It was the whole Old Testament translated into Greek. And so the Hebraic Jews were like, eh, they think they're better than us. They're so, so sophisticated, but they're not really the faithful people. Well, now they're all followers of Jesus. It's one big happy family. You read in Acts 2, they're all you know, sharing everything, and it's a fantastic kumbaya moment. And it turns out, though, that one of the things they're doing is that there's no social services, so the widows would be starving in any city unless they had family. If they didn't have a family, they were on their own. It wasn't good. So the church was feeding all these widows. Now, they're just feeding widows. But some of the widows were somehow, I don't know if it, it was a logistics issue, they didn't know where to go, but they were being overlooked. Well, this came to the attention of some of the uptight, on-edge Hebrew Jews. They go, hey, you guys are intentionally not you know, feeding our... Like, whoa, 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 you know. And, and so it became this big conflict, but of course, what did the church do? They creatively solved it. They said, I know, let's raise up some men and women who will be deacons, servants of the people. They'll deal with the institutional stuff so that we as apostles don't deal with distribution of food. We're talking about how to get the gospel out there. And it became a fantastic solution. So they created functional structures to minister to the church so they could continue ministering through the church. 
And one of the takeaways for me on this is that the church is built by creative disciples, not consumers or critics of religious goods and services. Hey, this is not working. What would a disciple do? Let's talk about it. Why is it not working? What's the problem? What's the opportunity uh, that we can take here to solve that problem and make something work? All right. Who, who's willing to do that? Hey, I love to do this kind of thing. All right. Great. Fantastic. Boom. You take that model, and you then just start to apply it to everything. How complicated is that? Well, once our feelings are involved, everything is complicated. Once we want to nurture those hurts, gosh, if you, know, if you resolve it, you have to let go of your hurt. That's a bummer. You've got to stop blaming people. You've got to stop feeling resentful. You, you, can't, you have no handle to leverage against people because we've all moved on. But you keep doing that, and, and Bible, the Bible says that becomes a bitter root. Uh, you know, um, it's, it's like, uh, to use a, you know, kind of a crass analogy, it's like peeing in your own well. No farmer does that. At least when anybody's looking. So the idea of self-immolation or self-destruction is not a winning strategy. And you see, when the, when the church has embraced that mutual assured destruction, it goes bad. When they say, you know what, um, you're not willing, fine, I'm willing, Let's move ahead with people who are willing. And hopefully you'll get over it and catch up with us. And so churches thrive in one anothering. There's 30 of these passages, I won't read them to you, but there's 30 of these passages throughout the, the, the New Testament. One another passages, love one another, serve one another, bear one another's burdens, care for one another, speak the truth to one another, don't lie to one another. Et cetera, et cetera. There's 30 of these. And where do they all come from? They come out of that original fountain of John 13 where Jesus says, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. It's possible to say, I cannot stand you. I find you to be so obnoxious, but I do love you. Therefore, you know, I'm going to hold my breath and see what we can get, do to get through this. Everybody has feelings. Your feelings don't have to own you. Your feelings can become emotions. That is, you can name your feelings. I feel hurt. Well, why do you feel hurt? And then you work it through. But you just let your feelings run you. There's nowhere to start, nowhere to go, nowhere to end. It's a mess. So the church deals with feelings, names them as emotions, and then names the resources they have to deal with the inevitable, unavoidable, and solvable conflicts. The family, the marriage, the company, the friendship, the church that cannot resolve conflicts ends up being perpetually conflicted or they're wounded and have to go, you know, limp off and do the best they can. So this is why the church has always taken spiritual development and maturity so seriously. Why those terms I mentioned earlier really matter. Biblical knowledge that leads to wisdom. It's not just, I know a lot of the Bible, you don't. I'm superior to you. No, it's Bible knowledge becomes wisdom. What is wisdom? Ah, it sets us up to embrace the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. It sets us up to embrace solutions where there were just problems and enigmas in front of us. And this idea of moving from wisdom into personal growth leads us to emotional and relational intelligence. So if it's biblical knowledge that leads to wisdom, it's personal growth that leads to greater emotional and, intelligence, uh, and uh, relational intelligence. People actually grow and grow up in a church. This is what it's supposed to look like. And then you have ministry skills that start to emerge. 
learning how to feed yourself. So you never have to say, I left that church because I wasn't being fed. I learned to feed myself and contribute to the bounty of nourishment in the congregation to the point that, uh, that I, learned, I came to understand that that was a unique skill I had. My ministry skill is compassion. My ministry skill is understanding and listening and giving good counsel. My ministry skill is you know, building stuff so people can do stuff, creating structures and systems so people can perpetuate good stuff. So these ministry skills, what do they do? They lead to a missional impact. And next time you're in Burgundy going, this is the best wine I've ever had, thank the Cistercian monks who drained the swamps in Burgundy. All the best chateaux in Burgundy were started as vineyards for monasteries. And in the, and in the, um, in, in the French Revolution, the, the state said, hey, I know, let's take those. So you, you start to look around at the structures that have been generated because somebody decided to develop some ministry skills. And you start thanking God for all those human structures, things like orphanages and universities. In the Midwest, the heritage of our, just, the, just take the Midwest. Don't, we always give credit to the East and the West Coast. Take the Midwest. Three quarters of the colleges in the Midwest were started by Christians during revival moments. They became state schools eventually, or they, became, they perpetuated as Christian colleges. Think about that. Education in America. Do you know that in, in England, there was no free education for children? When we were having our revolution with George III, uh, there were no schools in, in England for anybody unless you were wealthy. Then you sent them to a fancy school. We called those fancy schools that you paid for public schools. What a misnomer. But there were no what we would call public schools. Until one day, King George hears it. Some guy has a school in London over on Borough Road, uh, down, by, down by Borough Market, by you know, the, the bridge that goes across the River Thames. He's got 800 boys in this school. And so King George, who was not always a mean guy, said, I want to go see this guy in the school. So they, you know, he gets all suited up, gets in the carriage, they go down there, and the guy's like freaking out, why is the king visiting me? He goes, yeah, I understand you have 800 boys in a school. I can imagine his first thought was, is this against the law? Am I going to die in the gallows? What? But the guy said, well, you know, after the, this big revival we've gone through, you know, as I came to my senses in Christ, I thought, well, all these urchins are on the street. Why don't I turn them into students? And the, I said, I'll teach, you how to, how, I'll teach you the first year of my school if you teach the kids coming behind you the, the first year in school. Well, I'm teaching you the second year. And he kept doing that until he had a whole school filled with 800 boys. And the king said, how do you possibly manage 800 unruly boys? He said, well, you put a 14-year-old in charge of a 12-year-old, it works. That 14-year-old is going, yeah, I work with the headmaster. I'm in charge of this class. We're going to learn some stuff. And the 12-year-old goes, I like this. Hey, you 10-year-olds, you see how it works? <laughs> anyway, this is what it looks like when biblical knowledge becomes wisdom, when personal growth becomes intellectual, uh, uh, relational and emotional intelligence, when a ministry skill that starts as a little dinky thing becomes a whole movement that has social impact. So I mentioned revival. This is where I want to wrap it up. Those three things, the, the knowledge, the personal growth, the ministry skill development, all are the essential bedrock things that all those titles I mentioned at the very beginning of the sermon are about. That's the structure of the church, how we do what we do. But here's the beautiful thing, the amazing thing, the bewildering thing. 
is that along the way, God, um, as much as he uses those, sometimes those fall flat because human beings are, are not paying attention. Our country, people make a big deal about our country starting as a Christian nation. It's kind of true. It's kind of true. I wouldn't say it's not true, but I would say it's kind of true because it was a good start. The city set on a hill. They're pulling into the bay. This is a city set on a hill. And for those early years, the first generation, Puritans, people weren't allowed to live within seven miles of any city in England because they, were, didn't, they weren't Church of England. They left England because they didn't, like the, the co-op, they, they didn't like the compromise of the gospel. So these Puritan people, Baptists, Presbyterians, whomever, they all moved to the United States. It was awesome for a generation or two. By the early 18th century, 1701 and following, it was in serious decline. That generation was old or dead. Uh, the, the rest of the people were like, hey, this is kind of irrelevant. By 1727, our nation was in such disarray, it was literally as if the United States was going to implode on itself and die. Voltaire was saying from France, hey, another 30 years, nobody will remember Christianity or the church. It's over. Churches were empty. Literally, if I could go through all the social measurements, uh, every one of them was outrageous. I mean, venereal disease. In the, you think, no, not, not, not those people. Yes, those people. And, and, and the alcoholism and the abuse of people and the abuse of power and, and the larceny and the et cetera. It was just horrible. You would not have wanted to have lived in the United States. What changed it? Good social programs? No, there were some great efforts at that. Better government? They're working really hard to get it right. Churches, they're open, but nobody's responding. The Holy Spirit, in a small group of people, um, responded to their plea and their prayer. Lord, fall on us, fill us, revive us, renew us. Come meet us in a fresh way, because we don't know what to do. And that happened. And so from 1727 on, it was like 10 and 20 years later, it was a different United States especially the western settlements in Kentucky where people were afraid to go before then. Somebody said, okay, let's go find out what's going on over there. Most people don't come back once they go there. Because everybody there's making their own moonshine and you show up, come over the hill, they shoot you because they know you're there to get taxes. And they went into Kentucky and, and people were saying, these are the most civilized, godly people, I think, in the nation. How did that happen? This revival of 1727. And so it goes, 1727, 1790, 1830, 1857, 59, 1904. These movements of God's Holy Spirit, not generated by great preaching or beautiful buildings or anything else. All that was essential going forward, but it was people hungry. I love the way you said it today. That we're, you know, that we're, we're yearning. You used a different word. Yes, exactly. We're longing for God. Are you longing for God? One of the key ministries of the church is to long for God. And I wish I had the time, the hours, um, and I'll tell you just one little snippet. Uh, when I was at, <clears throat> uh, at Fuller Seminary, there was a guy there. He was an emeritus professor. He was a quirky dude, interesting guy, um, but I, I think he's kind of invisible by that point. Uh, more like a relic, and not a relic, but just kind of an interesting guy, but uh, nobody was taking classes because he wasn't teaching. So I don't know how I connected with him. I said, hey, can I do an independent study with you? And this guy's name was J. Edwin Orr. Google J. Edwin Orr, O-R-R. -R. You can get a Wikipedia on him. And for once, this is a pretty accurate Wikipedia. And then you can go online and say, um, uh, Revival Awakening J. Edwin Orr, and you will find out, you'll see some talks pop up. 
He did a series of 10 talks in 1981. He died in 1987. Uh, I, I was doing all this with him in 1980. He was the first scholar. He was a fellow of Oxford University, and, which meant he had an administrative, a teaching role at Oxford. But he, was a, he came from Ireland, Northern Ireland. He was a Baptist. Uh, he, started, he started hearing all this stuff from liberal seminaries and theologians saying, you know, all these revivals were nothing. They didn't really happen, or they happened. It was just ineffective. He took it on himself to, as a historian or theologian to study these. First person to ever document awakenings, revivals, renewals. He ended up starting a conference at Oxford University that would bring scholars from around the world to talk about these things. Did you, anybody see the movie Jesus Revolution? I haven't seen it yet, but that... I, at that 1980 conference, uh, I, I was invited to go as a guest at, at, at Orr, and so we're at this conference and all these scholars, I am just like a, you know, a student, a graduate student. So these are all these scholars, and he goes, hey, you know, uh, a paper was going to be presented about the whole Calvary Chapel movement that now came out in the movie. Basically, that movie was a case study. And he said, would you mind, since you're from California and you look like it, would you please um, read this paper and to make some comments on it. I'm like, what kind of comments am I going to make? Well, you live there, right? You, you live uh, in Southern California. So, okay. Um, but that's what they were doing. They were documenting these things. It's mind-boggling to start to make, connect the dots that you will never get in a university or a college or a school or a think tank. It's, it's knowledge that has been erased out of our cultural memory. Therefore, we don't know what it is. We don't refer to it. We have no expectation for it. But the social impact of these revivals and these, and these renewals to lift the church back up into its right heart and right mind is essential as part of God's movement. If, if I could uh, just leave you with one thought, is that this is what you need to long for. Long for. While you're doing the personal growth, while you're doing the Bible study, while you're working on ministry skills, our efforts will never, ever be enough but for the Spirit of God and the, the old-fashioned language is, you know, falling on us, feeling us, sweeping over us. And I'll tell you one final little story before we're going to move to prayer. <clears throat> um, Hugh Davies, head of the Contemporary Art Museum, retired a couple years ago. Uh, literally one of the premier art authorities in America, uh, contemporary art. Uh, since I, I, you know, I came to La Jolla Presbyterian Church from Newport Beach, and I, I walked over and introduced myself to him, and it turns out he's, I, I said, Davies, that's a Welsh name. He goes, yeah. I said, I, I, I was born in Wales. He goes, my gosh, you know, my grandfather was Welsh, my father was Welsh, I, was, I grew up here. I said, your grandfather, wow. Um, so he would have been a young man around 1904, 1905, he goes, yeah. I said, what did he do? He said, well, he became a pastor. I said, the Welsh revival of 1904. And he said, what? Yeah. He said, how do you know that? I said, well, I know a guy named J. Edwin Orr. <laughs> who, and so your grandfather became a pastor. He said, yeah, he was an amazing guy. What did your dad do? He became a pastor. Wow. What's he doing now? Well, he's a theologian uh, and, an, and an agnostic. I said, how about you? Because I guess I'm an agnostic. Probably not an atheist, but... So these revivals... Uh, the minds, this is what I was going to tell you. In Wales, the minds, after this revival started to sweep the nation. It was mind-boggling. The minds shut down. How did they shut down? 
because the, the miners would bark out commands of the horses totally hyphenated with profanity. And now all these people are coming to know Jesus and they've, they've erased all the profanity, so the horses are like, what did he say? The horses didn't know what to do. They had to retrain the horses to listen to the commands. It just, it's not a giddy up, rather a giddy up, you know. So there's always a social impact. And I could give you all the social impact organizations, whether it's you know, the Salvation Army or whatever else that came out of revival. So I'm asking you to, we're going to take a few minutes and simply pray. I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to ask you to pray. And here's what revival does. It's, it's not a rabbit's foot you rub or you know, Aladdin's lamp. It's just saying, Lord, I'm, I'm hungry for you. I'm longing for you in my life in this church, in the churches across this city and county and country and world. And so you can pray out loud if you want, you know, quietly out loud. You can pray silently. Um, and, and really, revival comes not from some program. It's never program or personality-driven. It's, it's, it's res- the result of confessing your sins to God, publicly acknowledging your, your faith in Christ, and inviting God to do what God alone can do. So we're going to spend a few minutes. The band's going to play some music in the background. Uh, we're going to, I'm going to start off several minutes. So it'll feel like a long time. When a revival kicks in, nobody wants to leave. So what we'll do today what could result in more and more prayer. You know, Omoe uh, is, um, is leading a prayer. Omoe, would you raise your hand? Omoe, you see him back there? He's a PhD graduate student at UCSD. Um, he's leading the prayer nights, Wednesday nights. We gather in prayer, and you don't know when the revival kicks in. But what will happen is, Asbury, Kentucky, had just had this outbreaking of the Spirit. It's an example of revival. So, Lord Jesus, we pray. We pray and invite you to do what you alone can do. We confess our absolute need for your absolute grace. We confess that the church in your in this, this city, uh, this church, the churches in this city, the churches in the county, the state, across the country, even around the world, uh, we have our backs up against the wall. Uh, yet people are hungry spiritually nonetheless. And so, Lord, I pray that you'd renew me, revive me, that you would renew and revive this church. That as we pray these prayers, these simple prayers for renewal, revival, and awakening, uh, restoration, that you would answer these prayers in us and through us. Yeah in congregations all over, that there'd be a, a wave of renewal. There would be an ongoing Jesus revolution. That's our prayer. And now hear us as we pray.
some of us have a hard time articulating what it is we're praying for, but Lord, you know. Uh, you know what's in our hearts and our minds, uh, whether it's frustration or despair, or a hunger for more, a longing for your righteousness to define us, a desire, Lord, for social change, a desire for economic change, a desire for intellectual openness to the wonders of what you alone have created and what you alone can do. Lord, I pray that this would be, by turns, um, something that would disrupt every church in the best possible way, confirm every church in the best possible way, that there would be signs and wonders, prophetic utterances, but most of all, it would be simply your love pouring in us and through us, expressed in works of compassion, done in humility, uh, even embracing suffering and sacrifice, that, that the ingenuity of your people would be released for the greater good, uh, that insights and understanding of, about scientific processes and political processes and economic and technological and relational would, would, would pour forth as a mighty stream coming from the pent-up desire of people who want to get it right in this life, who want to bless the world in your name. Lord, we pray that this would not only renew the church, but as in these eras of revival and renewal and awakening that we can document historically that the millions and millions of people in the church and the millions and millions outside of the church who came to know you and came together in a, in a fresh version of the church. Lord, this is what we hope and pray for. We want this to be our legacy collectively for our children, our grandchildren, our friends, our family, our communities, our churches. Lord, this is not anything that any of us, any church can possess or control or take credit for, but we will stand in awe and wonder in your presence as we experience it. So this is our prayer, and we've come in the confidence uh, that you have given us, the boldness that you've invited us to have as we come into your holy presence. For each one here, I pray this, for all of us together, and in your high and your holy name we pray, amen. So let's end with a, a confession, and the confession is simply singing our theology. So we're going to sing a song that is confessional, it's, it's theologically confessional. Uh, so let's do that together, and I'll offer a benediction and we're... We'll, we'll go on to the rest of the day.
simple, right? But the idea of saying, okay, uh, God, come, do what you want to do. But this is the, the normal Christian life. <laughs> this is the normal Christian life. This is what it is. Uh, Lord, your will be done. And so keep praying this way. Pray for our board. Pray for our staff. We're in a really neat season as a church. We're moving into a new season, new chapter. By the, by the end of this year, we want to be able to be able to our board present to you a new vision for what our church will be. Uh, so be praying for our board as we move toward that. Uh, you know, every church has a life cycle, and you get to renew it. Our life cycle started here, and now it's here. And we get to then say, okay, what, what, what does it look like to uh, reset the clock? And so we're working, we were, we've been working really hard on that for months and months, or actually over a year. And we have not, we've had nothing to tell you, you know, so... <laughs> Uh, but we, we, I can tell you that we're working hard at it and all these variables, and, and as soon as we know, uh, we'll let you know, and we'll agree together on what this next chapter should and could look like. So please be praying. So now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine on you because he loves you and wants you to radiate his glory as you, even as you experience it. May the Lord give you everything you need to walk in newness and fullness of life with him. Simply obeying him one day at a time through his word, through his spirit, among his people, facing all the challenges and opportunities that life serves up to you. You are beloved of God and you are safe and sound in him and in him for now and forevermore. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Next week we'll be launching a new season in terms of the, the school year and we'll be starting a new series talking about seven big questions. So look forward to seeing you next week.